Hello and welcome to an ex-Mormon's Guide. I'm your host, Johnny Walker. As I was in the middle of my faith crisis, one of the biggest questions I had was how do I explain the Spirit? And how do I determine what I believe is right and what is wrong? This is a difficult question, and one that is ultimately up to you. But fortunately for us, there are many ways to determine what is right and what is wrong. And in this episode, I want to focus on one tool in particular. So if you haven't been formally introduced, allow me to introduce you to the Elevation Emotion. So what is the elevation emotion? Jonathan Haidt coined the term in 2005 in his article, Wired to be Inspired, where he defines the emotion as a warm, uplifting feeling that people experience when they see unexpected acts of human goodness, kindness, courage, or compassion. Now, to me, that sounds a whole lot like the spirit, but what does that really, really mean, elevation? I want you to think about a time where you thought you felt the spirit. What happened? Did someone share an experience with you of human goodness? Did you or someone give an act of service? Did you feel a warm, uplifting feeling? So perhaps what you felt was a human emotion called elevation. Now what hate describes in the article is a theoretical line that goes from the goodest good at the highest point and pure evil at the lowest point. So as we move up or down, we get different emotional reactions. Also, when we see others move up or down that invisible line, we have those same emotional reactions. So when we see others or ourselves move up, on the line, we feel elevation. Conversely, when we see other people move down the line, we feel what's called social disgust, which is what Jonathan Haidt originally was studying was disgust. And his question was whether disgust, which is a emotion to help us avoid bad food or something that could be potentially toxic to us, how did that become a social tool? How did that become a social emotion, which led him down the path of social disgust? He was studying what happens when people drop down this invisible line to more and more, quote, evil. As he discovered, people feel disgust. And then one day he thought, Well, what is the emotion that people feel when they look up and they see people moving up the invisible line? And that is elevation. And elevation is tied to our morality. When we see people doing what we consider good, we feel elevation. And conversely, when we see people who we feel are doing wrong, we feel social disgust. 
And so that bears the question, what is morality? I like to view morality as our own personal sense of right and wrong. Morality is something that we determine. Morality is something that comes from within us. Something that is similar to morality is the concept of ethics. Ethics and morality can be used interchangeably in a philosophical sense, but it is commonly understood that ethics are more of a code of conduct that is determined by an outside force. You'll see ethics in pretty much every group that you can belong to. Each community has determined what is right and what is wrong in their eyes. So sometimes ethics and morality can be at odds. When the outside group decides something is wrong that you may consider right, there is what I like to call a moral conflict. An example of this would be, let's say, uh, you hold strongly the freedom of speech. You think it is an integral to society, that it is an inalienable right. Yet you live in a society where criticizing religious leaders is wrong, even if the criticism is true. So the ethics of the society that you belong to and your own personal morality are at odds. When we have a moral conflict, when our own morality and the ethics of the group that we belong to clash, it is a difficult situation that requires hard choices. So how do we determine our own moral compass? Anyone who has spent any time in the church knows that there is a very strict ethical code that exists in the Mormon community. Whether that comes from the first strength of the youth, the gospel principles book, uh, preach my gospel, the missionary handbook. There are so many books, so many rules. Uh, the temple recommend questions. Those are like the highest level of ethics in the church. There are a lot of unwritten rules in Mormon culture, such as, you're not allowed to take the sacrament with your left hand. Or if you are a man, you have to wear a white shirt to church. But these standards are so encompassing that it can be really hard to figure out your own morality. Determining our own morality is very overwhelming and stressful, but it can also be rewarding and enriching. So where do you begin? How do you start to determine your own morality? your own sense of rights and wrongs. Ironically, I want to go back to one of the discussions I had at church. And you may have had this discussion before. Um, it's a little more, you know, high priest group. It's a little more uh, philosophical in a way. It's the question, what is sin and what is transgression? How are they alike and how are they different? I was always told in these discussions that that sin is intentionally doing something wrong. And these are the things that really kind of drop us down on our invisible line. Um, these are sins like murder, theft, taking the Lord's name in vain and all that kind of stuff. These things cause others to feel social disgust at our actions. And they cause us to feel shame because we know that we've done something that we feel to be wrong. For example, sexual sin is commonly considered just slightly worse than murder in the church. 
How many kids who've had sex outside of marriage have been shunned and discarded by the church? Kids who know it's wrong, but they're young and hormones are raging and they're exploring. But it's still sin, quote unquote. The community still feels disgraced by the actions of that individual who committed that sin. Taking it a little further, how many people have committed suicide because they aren't heterosexual? The church is really tough on people who aren't straight. And while many church members can say, oh, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. How many times has that happened? I've seen people get shunned for being transgender, my own sister. And I'm not going to say I've been perfect about this. I, I remember on my mission, there was an elder that was being accused of being homosexual by his companion. I felt that that was bad. And I wanted that elder to get sent home. And I'm ashamed of that thought because now I know that it's wrong. Now I've determined in my own morality that being homosexual is okay. But I went with the group think. I went with the ethics of the church. So going back to the discussion of sin versus transgression, it is taught that transgression is wrongdoing that was not intentional. These are supposedly lesser things in the eyes of the church. People who haven't been taught, quote unquote, the truth aren't really intentionally doing anything wrong because they don't know they're breaking the rules of the church and in the members of the church's eyes, God's rules. So the same people who have sex outside of marriage or those same people who are homosexual, they, quote, don't know what they're doing. Their intention is not to break the rules of the church or God. Their intention is to be happy. But there's still a lot of social disgust at those people from members of the church. And even though their intent is not to hurt other people, there's still social disgust. So really the key point that I'm trying to make here is that the social disgust and the subsequent shame that we feel is from breaking the church's code of ethics, not necessarily our own morality. And this is a tough, tough, tough moral conflict that many of us have to go through. And I honestly only see two options to get out of that moral conflict. One, you change your morality to fit the group better. You change what you think is personally right and wrong to go into the group think. Or two, you separate from the group. There are no other options. You can sit on the fence for a long time, but in the end you have to make a choice. You have to either change your morality or leave the group. Assuming a majority of the people who are listening to this podcast have taken the second option, what's next after separating from the group? Eventually, you're going to have to figure out your own personal rights and wrongs about everything. How do you feel about coffee? How do you feel about tea? How do you feel about the word of wisdom? How do you feel about the LGBT plus community? How do you feel about God? How do you feel about going to the beach on Sunday? Is Sunday even a special day? Is Saturday even a day we prepare for Sunday? 
I don't have those answers for you because you have to choose your own answers, but I can help you make those decisions. And for me, it's all about intent, just like sin versus transgression. What is the intent of the action? Did you intend to harm? In my opinion, anything done to harm others is morally wrong, no matter who does it. And maybe some things that have hurt other people while without intending to is also wrong. There is a lot of nuance in morality that you have to figure out on your own. But is it inherently evil to drink coffee or tea? Is it inherently evil to have consensual sex, even if your partner is of the same gender as you? I believe that there are things that cause us to feel elevation or disgust. But I also believe that there's a majority of things that are neutral. There's not really a good or evil aspect to it. It's just, it's just neutral. I don't believe that drinking coffee is inherently evil, nor do I believe that drinking coffee is inherently good. As Mormons and as religious people, we are taught to see things in a black and white spectrum. We are taught to see things as black and white. There's no gray. Everything has an inherent goodness or an inherent evilness to it. But in my opinion, there is a lot of gray. There's also a lot of things that make us feel elevation. And while I no longer consider myself to be a part of the LDS church, there's still some teachings that I agree with. And a lot of them come from the uh, Christ-like attributes listed in the Preach My Gospel. Uh, charity, love, patience, knowledge, humility, honesty. These are all ideals and attributes that I hold in high regard. But I had to think about it. I had to think. I had to go through every single line of the church, every single rule, and I had to determine what do I agree with? Now, some people might say that picking and choosing your own morality is like going to a buffet and picking and choosing what you want to eat and what best fits you. But it's supposed to be that way. You're supposed to determine for yourself what you believe to be right and wrong. Nobody can tell you what to believe. People can yell at you, people can preach at you, people can plead and try to convert you, but ultimately it is your own thoughts and your own choices. We are often taught to let the spirit guide, that anything good that we do or think is not our own, but rather the spirits. We're even taught that everything we do or think that is worldly or bad are our own. We are taught that nothing good comes from us, just our wrongdoing. Excuse me, but I'd like to beg to differ. Everything that we do, the good and the bad, comes from us. Each of us instinctively knows how to be good people, and we own our good deeds. Nobody else can take credit for the good that we do. I say this because when it comes down to it, we know what we believe to be right and wrong. When faced with a decision, we already know. 
Our morality is baked into our subconscious, and we don't have to think about it. When we wrestle with moral decisions, a lot of times we are fighting within ourselves about what we know to be right and what we may want to do. And maybe that's just me, but I've wrestled with myself and my selfish desires and my morality many, many times before. And as we go through life, we will encounter things that will make us question our morality. And it is okay to change your mind when faced with new information. As an example, I grew up in an extremely conservative community. I was homeschooled and really only associated with people who were right-leaning for the most part. Hell, I even had a seminary teacher in, who taught in class that God was conservative and the devil was a liberal and that Obama was extremely evil. Everyone I knew was small government, and some were even what I would now consider to be alt-right. But I pretty much believed everything that everyone taught me, because why not? They were my leaders, and I was supposed to trust them. I admit I was naive and gullible, but isn't that the way the church wants us to be? Just trust them. Don't worry about everything else. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. But it wasn't until after my mission where I started to be confronted on what I thought was right. It started with some of the more neckbeardy type of thought patterns that I had. Now, I'm going to admit I was always a bit of a bigger guy and I always had issues with getting into relationships with girls. I always felt very self-conscious about my weight and I had some problematic thoughts. And yes, I did have a few relationships, but some of them were pretty toxic and left me in a bad place. But as I came home from my mission, I found stuff that was online and encountered people and I read stories. And I began to slowly start to realize how selfish my thinking was. And I started to change what I considered to be right and wrong. Then the 2016 election came around. And that was some crazy chaos in my head, or at least it was at first. I mean, it was chaos everywhere. <laughs> that, was, that was a bad time. Um, but when people were starting to kind of work their way through the primaries, I wasn't really paying a whole lot of attention. I didn't really care a whole lot about politics, um, but I was talking with my grandpa and he had kind of offhandedly mentioned that he liked Bernie Sanders. And at that point, I really didn't know who Bernie was. And so I checked out his website and I went straight to his policies and I found that I pretty much agreed with all of them. It wasn't until after I had gone through his policies that I realized that he was a Democrat or running as a Democrat and that his ideas were considered very liberal and progressive. And that was a little weird for me because I grew up like really conservative. But this guy made sense to me. He was speaking to a deeper part of me that I didn't really know I had. Uh, I didn't really listen to before. And that started me on a path that ended with me realizing that much of what I was taught to be true and right growing up maybe wasn't as right as I thought. 
eventually I am where I am now, a pretty staunch liberal and progressive, which is nowhere near what I imagined myself to be when I was young. Now, I'm not saying that conservatism is wrong or liberalism is right. And I'm just saying that I was faced with new information and I changed my mind. But while I did eventually change my ideas of right and wrong, it took me a long time and a lot of mental turmoil. But I wouldn't give away any of that mental turmoil. I'd go through it again, and I hope to go through it again. Because I know that's what helped me grow as a person. I know it helped me make my own informed decisions and choices as to what I believe to be right and wrong. One thing to be aware of as we use our tool of elevation to figure out our moral compass is the reality of confirmation bias. To explain confirmation bias, I want to read from a New Yorker article called Why Facts Don't Change Your Mind. And this article will be linked in the description of the episode. So if you want to read it as well, uh, you're more than welcome to. So the article says, in 1975, researchers at Stanford invited a group of undergraduates to take part in a study about suicide. They were presented with pairs of suicide notes. In each pair, one note had been composed by a random individual, the other by a person who had subsequently taken their own life. The students were then asked to distinguish between the genuine notes and the fake notes. Some students discovered that they had a genius for the task. Out of 25 pairs of notes, they correctly identified the real one 24 times. Others discovered that they were hopeless. They identified the real note in only 10 instances. As is often the case with psychological studies, the whole setup was a put-on. Though half the notes were indeed genuine, they had been obtained from the Los Angeles County's coroner's office. The scores were fictitious. The students who had been told they were almost always right were, on average, no more discerning than those who had been told they were mostly wrong. In the second phase of the study, the deception was revealed. The students were told that the real point of the experiment was to gauge their responses to thinking that they were right or wrong. This, it turned out, was also a deception. Finally, the students were asked to estimate how many suicide notes that they had actually categorized correctly, and how many they thought an average student would get. At this point, something curious happened. The students in the high score group said that they thought they had, in fact, done quite well, significantly better than the average student even though, as they'd just been told, they had zero grounds for believing this. Conversely, those who had been assigned to the low-score group said that they thought they had done significantly worse than the average student, a conclusion that was equally as unfounded. Once formed, the researchers observed dryly, impressions are remarkably preservant. A few years later, a new set of Stanford students were recruited for a related study. The students were handed packets of information about a pair of firefighters, Frank K. and George H. Frank's bio noted that, among other things, he had a baby daughter and he liked to scuba. 
George had a small son and played golf. The packets also included the men's responses on what the researchers called the risky conservative choice test. According to one version of the packet, Frank was a successful firefighter who on the test almost always went with the safest option. In the other version, Frank also chose the safest option, but he was a lousy firefighter who had been, quote, on report by supervisors several times. Once again, midway through the study, the students were informed that they had been misled, that the information they received was entirely fictitious. The students were then asked to describe their own beliefs What sort of attitude towards risk did they think a successful firefighter would have? The student who received the first packet thought he would avoid it. The students in the second group thought he would embrace it. Even after the evidence for their beliefs had been totally refuted, people failed to make appropriate revisions in those beliefs, the researchers noted. In this case, the failure was particularly impressive since two data points would never have been enough information to generalize on. So when we go through our journey of personal discovery, instead of running from difficult and challenging information and ideas, we should embrace them and try to learn from them. It is all too easy for us to trick ourselves into confirmation bias. Some people may even feel elevation confirming their ideas and thoughts, but the best practice is to keep an open mind and an open heart and allow ourselves to grow, even if we think we already are. It's always possible to open our heart and mind even further. And contrary to popular belief, changing your view as you grow and evolve is good and healthy. Many times we stick to our guns even when we know we are wrong. It's okay to let go. We don't need to be stubborn all the time. Now I admit that I've struggled with this episode a little bit because I'm not an expert and I really, I don't want to come off as pretentious. All I want to do is to be able to help people as they're in a vulnerable and scary part in their lives. And I'm hoping that me being vulnerable with some of my less than stellar history, that I can help other people realize that they can change and that it is okay to change because things will get better. It did for me. And I'm very glad that I was able to be faced with information that challenged me and made me be a better person. So I just want to end this episode with one of my favorite quotes. It comes from Mark Twain, who says, each of you for himself or herself, by himself or herself, and on his or her own responsibility must speak. It is a solemn and weighty responsibility and not lightly to be flung aside at the bullying of the pulpit, press, government, or politician. Each must decide for himself or herself alone what is right and what is wrong, and which course is patriotic and which isn't. 
You cannot shirk this and be a man. To decide it against your convictions is to be an unqualified and inexcusable traitor. It is both traitorous to yourself and to your country. Let men label you as they may. If you alone of all the nation decide one way, and that way be the right way, by your convictions of the right, you have done your duty by yourself and by your country. Hold your head up, for you have nothing to be ashamed of. It doesn't matter what the press says. It doesn't matter what the politicians or the mob say. It doesn't matter if the whole country decides that something wrong is something right. Republics were founded on one principle above all else, the requirement that we stand up for what we believe in, no matter the odds or the consequences. When the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move, your job is to plant yourself like a tree beside the river of truth and tell the whole world, no, you move. I just love that quote. I love it because it is really our responsibility and our duty to ourselves to decide what is right and what is wrong. We cannot let the church or other people decide what is wrong or right according to us. It is our job. And you can use the elevation emotion to help guide you to feel what is right and what is wrong. Because remember, the best life is the one that you choose to live in the way that you choose to live it. This has been an ex-Mormon's guide. See you next time.